Hope you enjoyed the uh, break. I see someone found a Rosh. We were, where, where, where were you when we needed you, Rosh? I needed you to help bail me out, and you're a fair weather friend. Oracle number two. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Teach a little Greek tonight. Alpha, right? Or written like this, like a capital letter, Alpha. He is the beginning. Uh, one of my friends who uh, teaches on the book of Revelation talks about how the significance of Alpha, the first letter of the, of the Greek language, Omega, the last letter, God is the one who is in control of all human language. So he is the great cosmic linguistic uh, linguist. He's the beginning and the end. God is the one who starts everything. God is the one who ends everything. Now we're going to have a little bit of fun. We're going to do a little bit of what we might call a liturgical reading of, this, uh, of a section of chapter 1. A scholar, Ugo Vani, uh, suggests that chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, comprises a communal call and response reading between the lector and the congregation. <clears throat> in other words, that this was designed and it's built into the structure of the text in such a way that the lector would read part of it and then as he was... Uh, standing before the congregation, the assembled congregation, they would then read an, uh, a part of it that would uh, answer back. And so I've asked uh, the infamous Stephen Beardsley to help me out here. And I think I have to turn this gizmo off. I'm going to stand that. You're going to grab that one. Okay, very good. So I'm going to be, uh, for purposes of this exercise, and we need some you know, put some heart and soul into this. I'm going to be the lector. So I will read my portion as the lector, reading this, these, this text of Revelation aloud. And then uh, Pastor Stephen here will lead you in the congregational response. So where it says lector, I read. Where it says assembly, uh, you read. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is, who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. And now the assembly says, To him who loves us and has freed us by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Then the lector. Behold, he is coming with clouds, with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Everyone who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Could we just worship him for a moment? Amen. Lord, you are awesome. You are awesome in this place. We rest in you, Lord. 
even though sometimes things are disturbing. We thank you, Lord, that you reign as the sovereign King of kings, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. And we give you praise tonight. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Anxiety has no place in your kingdom. We can rest in you, O oh God. Hallelujah. This liturgical reading, I would suggest, functions to acclimate the assembly to hearing and obeying the book of Revelation as, they, as, as the assembly joins in we begin to say the words together and we become involved, we participate. It also anticipates the celestial worship scenes that begin in chapter 4. Uh, the writer of the book of Revelation is wanting us to join in, to participate, to be prepared for the worship scenes in which God's people will join him in the throne room. And also they serve to warm up the congregation and draw them into the worship experience and prepares them to bless God eternally in the life beyond. Amen. We now turn to chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, which is John's commissioning. John's commissioning on the island of Patmos. John's calling echoes a number of Old Testament prophetic commissioning scenes. It just doesn't come out of the blue, but it is reminiscent and reminds readers who are uh, themselves marinated in the Old Testament drama. They've getting some, they're getting some deja vu. They've heard this before. They've heard of similar prophetic callings. So for example, Isaiah sees the Lord enthroned in his temple, just like in a a few short chapters, John is, is going to ascend up into the cosmic realm and likewise have a vision, uh, experience a vision of the uh, glorious Lord on his throne. He also sees seraphim, angelic beings flying around, one crying, holy, 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 and he explains that he's a man of unclean lips. Jeremiah, despite his protest, God assures him of his mission touches his mouth, gives him two visions, the branch of an almond tree and a boiling pot that demonstrate the surety and nature of the prophetic word. So John is not the first, but he's actually the last of a long-standing series of people who were called to specialized prophetic ministries. We're also reminded of Ezekiel who sees God's glory and like John, four creatures, uh, very similar in description to those who will, John will later uh, describe beginning in chapter four as uh, uh, God's uh, throne attendants who serve uh, the one seated on the throne. He falls on his face as John does in, uh, uh, frequently in the book, is briefed on his mission, eats a scroll, as John will be commanded uh, later on in the book, is lifted up by the Spirit, as John will be in the beginning of chapter 4, and hears a great thunderous voice, as John does here in chapter 1. And then Daniel, who receives a vision of a ram and a goat, and an angel comes to explain the meaning of the vision. 
So John's commissioning is, is not the first, but in many ways is the culmination and brings together the various strands of Old Testament prophetic callings, all focused on this one individual, John, and the grand message that he is unfolding for us. John uh, first sees a vision. He is, we are told he's on the island of Patmos uh, for the word of God, probably because he'd been preaching the Christian message, which was rubbing up against uh, the Roman sensibilities and the, and the in the in the uh, the pagans, and is eventually incarcerated. By the way, there's an interesting uh, uh, Christian tradition that the Apostle John uh, was boiled in a vat of, uh, of of boiling oil, and they were unable to to kill him. He he came uh, sort of came back to life again, and so some have surmised that. Because they couldn't kill him, they decided to incarcerate him on the island of Patmos, exile him. And so John is on the island of Patmos, and uh, according to uh, Revelation, he says, uh, he hears this, he's in the spirit, he hears a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And it's very interesting because it, he, it says that he turned to do what? To see the voice. He hears a voice, but he turns to look at that which he had heard. And he sees seven golden lampstands and uh, one like the Son of Man in the middle of the lampstand, lampstands. This reminds us of the book of Daniel, chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought uh, him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So when John sees a vision like the Son of Man, uh, alert readers who are, who are steeped in the Old Testament and steeped in the prophetic books of the Old Testament would immediately recognize the Son of Man figure. We've seen him before. We know of him before the book of Daniel, this figure that will rise up and reign. And so he begins to uh, describe uh, what he sees. This one is in the midst of the lampstands. He's like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden belt. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. His voice as the sound of many waters, and he had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. John sees this vision. This is the inaugural vision of the book. This is the book. This is the vision that starts the whole ball uh, rolling. Seeing this, uh, this, this uh, uh, figure, this uh, grand figure, and he falls down as if dead, and this being. 
this son of man figure tells him not to be afraid. He is the first and the last. He lives, he's dead, he was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen, I have the keys of Hades and death. And then we come to verse 19. One of the most uh, uh, controversial uh, passages in all the book of Revelation. Write these, the things, so this is the, John is being commanded by this exalted son of man figure to write the things which you have seen. Well, that's fairly easy. He's going to simply record uh, his experiences. And the things which are present tense. So while he's going to record things that are taking place in the first century, and the things which shall take place after this. And scholars have debated what does this mean in terms of the layout of the book and the meaning of the book. Is it, will he first write about the things that are in the present and then later on in the book he's going to write about things that are in the, in the future from his perspective? Is this some way of organizing the order of the contents of the book, the organization of the book, or not? Well, I don't have a, have a great answer for that. I don't think that the book is purely chronological, and we talked about that last time. But this gives us a, 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 a sense of where the book is going. It's going to be talking both about things that are in John's present time as well as things that are in John's future And so chapter 1, verse 20, is one of the very few times uh, in the entire book. Now watch this. This is really critical. How do you interpret the book of Revelation, the most controversial book of the Bible? Most of the visions in the book are not interpreted for the reader of the book. We have to make do. We have to do the best that we can. But this particular Uh, element of the inaugural vision is interpreted for us. Why is that so important? Because we are given an example of how we are supposed to interpret other visions in the book, right? Let me show you how it's done, uh, the, the oracle says. Let me show you, here's an example, here's an instance of me giving, of John seeing something otherworldly, and the interpretation being included with it. Here you go. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. Let me tell you what they mean. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. At least in a general sense, what does this teach us about, here's a fancy word, the hermeneutics, or perhaps the hermeneutical key of understanding the visions. They are are given to us symbolically, but they refer to some other reality. They're symbols that point to something else. And so in this particular case, voila, right, voila. 
My French is terrible. Is that French, Stephen? You studied French, right? I, I studied French for my PhD program. You know how much of it I remember? Walla walla. <laughs> Did you study French? Well, you got, you remember more than I do. <laughs> I actually studied theological French, so we couldn't. So this is, this is good stuff right here. We are given an interpretation. This symbolic, visionary uh, entity that is being seen is described, and then we are told this is what it means and refers to. Where does Jesus dwell, by the way? He's in the midst of the seven churches. Can we extend it to our day? Where is Jesus? He's right here among us right now. When we get, particularly when we gather together, he walks up and down the aisles. He searches hearts. And we'll see examples of this in the uh, oracles to the seven churches. He knows everything that's going on. He knows all the monkey business that goes on in the church. <laughs> Arash, why are you shaking your head? Was that a yes? A yes? He's a little confused back there. Can an usher help him? God knows everything. He reads our hearts. He knows our motivations. And in chapters 2 and 3, he will look, he will look very carefully with his uh, instruments of assessment and be able to determine, are we living faithfully? Are those people living faithfully? And by extension, are we living faithfully in light of the fact that the Lord is going to return in the clouds? So let's talk about the, the oracles to the seven churches. And we won't, uh, this evening, because of the limitations of time, we'll only probably take a look at a couple. But um, let's talk, let's prepare ourselves a little bit for these seven uh, oracles or seven letters, which comprise chapters 2 three. So the oracles is Main Street. You remember, remember in the first session today I talked about uh, how the opening of the book is like a, a ship coming out of, the, out of the sea and coming into the harbor and landing and coming through the gates and, 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 and entering into the city. The oracles are Main Street. And what I mean by that is if you miss chapters two and three, you've, you've, you've missed much of the essence of the book. This is where the rubber meets the road, where the Lord speaks to the seven churches and evaluates and assesses and strengthens and warns in some cases about their behavior as they are waiting for the eschaton. Here is the literary pattern of the seven churches. Very important. As you, as you read through the, the letters to the seven churches, each one follows a particular, rep, rather repetitious pattern. Here, here are the uh, elements of each oracle. First of all, John's commission to write to that particular congregation. To the angel of the church in fill in the city. Now, there's a lot of debate about what this uh, 
the book mean by the designation to the angel? Uh, does that mean to the pa some have suggested that means to the pastor? So in other words, this oracle, if it was written to the church in Newark, um, <clears throat> it's addressing Stephen Beardsley. So the rest of you can just kind of fall asleep. This is for Stephen. I don't think that that's what it's talking about. In fact, if you look throughout the book, the term angel, angelos, refers to an angelic being. And some have suggested that every congregation, and I think this is very interesting, has, if you will, a guardian angel that helps protect and, 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 and serves the, need, the, the, the spiritual needs of that uh, particular congregation. Um, I, I happen to be, by the way, the guardian angel for a person in our church who invariably every time she gets into some kind of uh, horrific accident or something like that, I just happen to be there. She calls me Clarence. And I'm still trying to earn my wings. <clears throat> oh my. Secondly, something about Christ's nature. Christ, this is a message from Christ to the church. Usually stemming from the inaugural vision. So usually some element from John's commissioning when he encountered this one like the Son of Man that kind of language is used in addressing the congregation. Number three, and here's where things start to get a little uncomfortable. An evaluation or assessment of the church's strengths and weaknesses. As a professor at a seminary, we have to answer to an accrediting agency. And if you're lucky like me, we have two accrediting agencies. Fun, fun. And they emphasize assessment. What kind of assessment criteria are you using to evaluate students' progress? You have promised them that if they complete this program of study, they will be able to do ABC. How are you demonstrating through your assessment procedures that that is actually happening? So put it into church terms. We're blood-bought, right? We are saved by the glorious work of Jesus on the cross. We put our faith in him. How are we doing in our daily walk? Are we being faithful in light of the eschaton? Are we being faithful in light of the fact that he's going to come back and we're going to meet him personally, face to face? Are we being faithful to our calling? So here's where things get a bit tight. And not all of the churches are doing particularly well. How the congregation needs to <clears throat> address its weaknesses. The oracle doesn't simply say you're, you're doing good here, but you're not doing good there. It also talks about how they are to uh, deal with their lack in particular areas. Now, it's interesting that virtually, uh, I think maybe all of them, all of the oracles say, I know your works, you're doing, you're do, you've got good works. You're, you're serving, you're doing good stuff. But, all, but most of them are failing in some realm or the other. A summons to carefully heed these oracles, listen carefully to what the Spirit says, a phrase that, by the way, is very much reminiscent of and is used often in the Gospel of Mark, and a call to live 
victoriously. Now, moving along. Here are on this map, you can see Asia Minor, the GNC off to the left, uh, Greece off to your, the left side of the screen. Here, dead center, is Asia Minor, or close to dead center is Asia Minor, what we now call the uh, western uh, coast of Turkey. And so the order of the letters begins with Ephesus on, on, the, on the left there, the yellow. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Notice there's other churches. Someone already mentioned Colossae, uh, Miletus, Troas. There were m many other churches in this region. This follows a geographic, and some might even suggest, with Ephesus being uh, the th essentially the third most populated city of, of this time period, with Rome being the most populated and Alexandria, Egypt the second. Uh, Ephesus was probably, in many ways, the most prominent city. Starts with Ephesus and, go, and, and winds its way around in a circle coming to Laodicea. There's been some who've suggested that this actually followed an ancient uh, Roman postal route, uh, though if this was the case, it only would have been officially used by the Roman government. There were no, uh, there was no, like we have today, U.S. Postal Service where I can privately send a letter to someone. It was only used for official uh, Roman government business. Another way to think of these seven uh, oracles uh, and it requires a bit of reordering them, and I like this a lot. Uh, and this is suggested by Craig Kester in his book, Revelation and the End of All Things. We can also uh, rearrange them in a topical way. So to, uh, these are churches that are flirting with the world. They are in danger of assimilating into the culture around them. The culture is trying to mold and shape our culture. Listen up, right? Our culture is trying to shape who we are, our identity, how we live in this world. And if we're going to be faithful, we have to push back. Uh, three of the churches were in danger of assimilating and losing their identity and just sort of buying into the world around them and becoming like them and losing their Christian distinctions. Ephesus, Pergamum, Thyatira. Some of the churches, and these are the only two, by the way, that get good report cards, are uh, those in Smyrna and Philadelphia. They are poor and they are persecuted. God, save me from persecution. Well, actually, sometimes persecution can, can whip us into shape. <laughs> It, it, uh, it separates the men from the boys, if you understand what I'm saying. When, when there's extreme pressure, those who are true blue Christians, their, their true colors come out. The third group, uh, Kester points out, are the complacent ones. These were the wealthy, prosperous ones who didn't even, didn't even know there was a spiritual battle going on. They're just happy. Who? Life is great. Not knowing the extreme spiritual danger that they were in. And these are the churches of Sardis and Laodicea. So as we uh, explore these further, I think that, that 
this, these raise many, many questions, perhaps uncomfortable questions. See how we're moving away from, let's try to figure out a timeline to, oh my goodness, this text is challenging the way I live today and the way that I plan and order and live my life in light of the fact that the Lord's coming in the clouds. Look at the report cards, and this is pretty sobering. Some of the report cards were pretty were encouraging, right? Two out of seven. They were glad to take the report card back to pastor, you know, or back to the parents. I'm doing, we're doing pretty good. But five of the churches, the report is actually rather shocking, disturbing, and I would say dismal, dismal. And to think that five out of seven churches were not doing well is a very sobering analysis that should make us wake up and think about, are we being faithful? Or are we just sort of coasting along and letting the world shape and, and mold us? So we want to allow the Spirit to search our hearts as we think about where we are on the, in, in time and space. Here's some questions. Are we living a life in light of the second coming? Now, I know that reports of the second coming in, in previous generations were such that people did radical things that I think were unwise. The Lord's coming back. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell all my belongings and move to the top of a mountain and wait for him. Uh, Some of those people waited a whole long time and it didn't happen in their lifetime. But on the other hand, we we need to be uh, awoken to the fact his coming is imminent. We don't know when it is. It could be this evening. It may not be for many, many years. But we have to live our life knowing that like like uh, uh, the master of the estate who's gone on a far journey... We have no way to gauge for sure when he's coming back. We just know when he comes back, it's going to be sudden. And we don't want to be messing around when he comes back. We want to be faithfully discharging, carrying out our duties as Christians. Some other things to think about. Are we living a life pleasing to God? Have we repented of our sins? What spiritual condition will the Lord find us in when he comes back? Are we so assimilating into the surrounding culture that we are indistinguishable from the world around us? And that's not simply talking uh, merely about the way that we dress, though that is an important factor. But the things we say, the, th- the things that are priorities, the way we relate, this, our, 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 the kind of spirit and attitude that we have, the way we bear witness to Jesus? Are we compromising and losing our identity as Christians? Do people at your work know you're a Christian? (laughs) Without you maybe even needing to say it, can they tell there's something different about you? Can they sense the presence of of, of a holy God who is around you and in you? Do we recognize the time in which we live? Are we hearing what the Spirit is saying to the churches? Are we reading their mail and hearing the message 
uh, for us. So yes, 2,000 years ago, and, and yes, some of the things that these churches were struggling with, meat sacrifice to idols and stuff, are sort of dead issues today. But the principles are extremely relevant to how we uh, choose to uh, um, carry ourselves. So per, some profiling questions to ponder. Where does my church most closely fit among the seven? Newark, UPC. Where, where, which of those seven churches most closely correlates to the character, the nature of, of those churches? That's a question for Arash. Better get that one right, buddy. We'll talk later. Which letter or letters most clearly speak to and resonate with you and I personally, right? Yes, because we are members of a particular assembly, we tend to take on the characteristics in some sense of the pastor and the leadership and the, the, the characteristics of that. But on a personal level, where do these uh, oracles speak to us and where we are in our own walk with God? And why? Why does a particular oracle speak to you or not? So though these, these oracles were recorded some 2,000 years ago, these messages are extremely relevant to our day. That's why the name of the seminar is Apocalypse Then and Now. If it was only Apocalypse Then, we'd be doing a historical study with no application. Right, but it's important that we understand that this is a, the voice of God continues to speak through the text of Revelation, and call us to a higher calling, to a superior lifestyle, to be faithful witnesses to a dark and dying world. And so these messages are relevant today. And when the Scripture is read today, the Spirit still speaks clearly. So in the few moments remaining, let's just take a, a look at uh, Ephesus, and then we'll uh, open it up for some Q&A. City of Ephesus, a monumental city. Uh, we've already mentioned population-wise, the third largest city of its day. It was one of the chief and most pre prestigious port cities of Asia Minor. People who were citizens of, of Ephesus, were, were uh, proud of their city. Um, they had a lot of pride in the accomplishments and the heritage and the long-standing tradition of this ancient city. The people of Ephesus, the, uh, for the most part, were devotees of, of Artemis, or uh, known in, uh, in uh, Latin as Diana, and in fact, they had a massive temple uh, built there. It no longer uh, stands. I think like maybe one column is left. It was one of the wonders of the seven, uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. They're uh, high on a, on a hill, and they were extremely devoted uh, to their patron deity, uh, Artemis. And you might recall when 
Paul was in Ephesus uh, and, start, and basically a riot ensued and, they, and the citizens went into the, uh, went into the theater and began to chant for the space of two hours, right? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, right? She is, our, she is the god, the goddess that we are devoted to and had a magnificent theater and was an enthusiastic supporter of the Roman imperial cult. And of course, there's a tradition, a Christian tradition, which we won't talk uh, in any detail about this evening, that went, goes back to its founding uh, uh, Christian missionary, Paul. So, a great city, magnificent city, uh, and if you read Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, it was a city that uh, was ruled by spiritual powers as well. So let's look at the message to the assembly in Ephesus. It's directed by, from the one who holds the seven stars and walks in the midst of the seven lampstands. He is the one who is present among them. Despite all these uh, 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 demonic powers that were ruling the city and despite on the, on the surface seeing all these temples to deities and, uh, and so forth, where was Jesus walking among in the midst of the church? These people have tested the false apostles, and we have a reference to something similar in 1 John. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. These, these people were orthodox uh, in, their, uh, in their theology, and they were making sure that they could tell who was, on, who was teaching truth and who was teaching heresy. However, they had left their first love. And it was John who uh, writes in his first epistle, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Uh, they had become a loveless church, right? They followed the right teaching. They followed the right doctrine. They, they were able to identify those who were false teachers, but they were no longer living a life of compassion and love for God and evidently for each other. So unless you repent, he says, I will remove your lampstand. Amen. Not, not good news. He says, uh, but the Lord says, I sh we both share a hatred for the Nicolaitans. Um, not the Nicolaitans you're probably thinking about in, <laughs> in our modern day, but the word itself is a, a, a compound word, meaning victory and people. And I won't bore you with all the, the, the scholarly discussion on who these people were. Um, some have said that uh, it, it's simply these were followers of Nicholas. Others have, have suggested that um, these were the same false teachers that we read about in the epistles of John. The bottom line is we don't know. We're not given enough information as to who the Nicolaitans were. He tells them to heed the voice of the Spirit. And here's the promise given to them. If they will get their act together, they are given a promise of the new Eden. Reaching to the very end of the book, the overcomer will eat of the tree of life centered in the paradise of God. In the middle of, the, of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So, report card. Ephesus. What, what would we give Ephesus? What would you say? B minus? I would like to have you as my professor. <laughs> he grades on a curve. You've left your first love. <laughs> What's that? I hear an F. It's kind of like an auction here. I get it. How many Fs? We <laughs> a D. I think D sounds pretty good. They're right on the edge of, of shipwreck, train wreck. They're not doing very well, and if they don't get their act together, they're, they're going to slip, in, slip into complete total failure. So God encourages them, though, right? So you're not doing so great. Yeah, you gotta, we, both, we both don't get along with the Nicolaitans, but I tell you what, if you, if you change, if you repent, there's the promise of participating in the tree of life, the eschatological tree at the end of the book. Well, we are just about uh, out of time. We got about six minutes or so. And I think this would be a great place to now transition into further Q&A and dialogue. So we got, our, we got our mic out there. I'm trying to remember. I'm supposed to turn this one off. <laughs> what questions do you have, particularly relating to this material uh, uh, from tonight's sessions? So regarding the church at Ephesus, since we now have looked at the spiritual part of this, what actually happened with this church when they were told, to, if you get your act together? Wow, that is a great question, which moves us into the second century and beyond. The church, of course, no longer exists. Ephesus is, uh, while it's in, it's one of the most well-preserved ancient cities, it's in, it's in virtual ruins um, Stephen, second century. One of the things that we know about Ephesus is it continues to play a pivotal role. Um, it is one of those important cities. It continues on. But like most of early Christian history, when you move out of the scriptural period of the first century and you move into the second, the third, the fourth centuries, it begins these places, what we know about them becomes mired in the councils. So we only know of them in, was there a council held there? One of the things historically we know is that tied into John is that there's Christian tradition that Mary ended her days there as well as John. Um, there's a church there that we saw that bears testimony of that, a very, uh, the ruins of which was, was, it was dedicated to her. But the ability to answer specifically their response to this letter we simply don't have, not within historical documents, and I don't believe Revelation even gives us an answer. That's one of the interesting things I think Dr. Brick was pointing out to us is that we do not get the resolution to these letters. They're left open-ended in the sense that maybe they were yes to those churches, but beyond, similar to the letters of Paul at times. We see the problems and we see the instruction, but we don't always get the resolution of what happens there. That's the best that I can add to that, that there is a historical location, a geographical location, 
and we know certain things about that as that moves on in time. But being able to answer what did they do? And I don't think, does the book of Revelation give us any answer as to what they do? Not specifically, no, not really any of the churches per Correct. se. Correct, yeah. And that open-ended nature, by the way, is, is an invitation for, for us to, to ask what, you know, how should we respond um, what are some less obvious indicators that you found through your study of Revelation that support the case of the Apostle John being the author of Revelation as opposed to some other person? Yeah, um, a number of, and this, a number of church fathers, uh, and it would take a while to unpack who, the, who they all were and what each one said, um, but a number of them attest to uh, this John being the apostle. Uh, so if you want to trace the history through, uh, uh, for example, Irenaeus is, is one of the best places to start the testimony of Polycarp and so forth. Um, but this is a highly contested issue among scholars. Some have, some have suggested that there were actually many uh, hands in the pot, so to speak, involved in the production of the Johannine Corpus, so Gospel of John, Epistles of John, Revelation, and that it was the church of the second century that fused them all into one epic grand figure, the Apostle John, son of Zebedee. Um, I, I sort of have a, a different perspective on this, and I think it makes a lot of sense that he was the... It, the same individual did write them under different, uh, I don't know what the best term is, aliases. So the Gospel of John, he's the beloved disciple. In the epistles of John, he's the elder. In the book of Revelation, he is the prophet or, or seer. And I think there's a lot of, if you, if you uh, look at the similarities in the, um, the style of the writing, the uh, the. Uh, uh, a number of the devices he uses and so forth, compare them. They're, they're quite s similar in many ways. And then add to that the external uh, evidence from the, from the second century uh, church fathers. I think that solidifies the, uh, for me, that th this is uh, the Apostle John. Would I take a bullet for that? Would I, am I dogmatic about it? No. Uh, but I, but I think I find it I find the evidence compelling for it to be John Apostle John. First note: We colleagues like to tease him that the only reason he believes that is because he wants to own more of the New Testament to teach. <laughs> but that is on a humorous note, not serious at all. How how did he get the uh, letters off the island to the churches? I'm sorry, I couldn't I couldn't understand. How did he get the letters? off the island and to oh, the churches? Fantastic, fantastic question. We don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, it was, uh, we do know a lot about how letters were transmitted. They were typically, uh, 
uh, a secretary, the technical name is an amanuensis, would copy dictation. It's very possible the book of Revelation was dictated to a scribe. Um, it would uh, sometimes be originally written down on wax tablet, a wax tablet um, in a form of Greek shorthand, and then transcribed and edited and put on papyrus, sent by an envoy, a messenger who would carry it, and then a lector would read it aloud. Now, in John's case, he's in exile. He may have somehow smuggled it. Uh, he may have been, you know, at some point released from, from uh, incarceration and returned, bringing the book of Revelation with him. Uh, some scholars have suggested that he actually um, didn't write the book until he returned back to Ephesus, where he was bishop. So he received the Revelation experience on Patmos, but may have written it in Ephesus. We don't know how long it took for him to write it. So all we can, all we can go by is what we do know about uh, transmission of documents in that time period and try to piece some of it together. Tradition that John was on the island alone, or was it a more of, a, of an island where there were multiple people that, and therefore there were ships that would come, bring provisions, right, etc.? It, was, it wasn't the only island like it. There were a number of islands in the Aegean that were fairly remote and were used uh, to house prisoners who were often subjected to hard labor. And so in the ancient world, it was a very fairly common uh, punishment to banish someone far away they would be away from home, away from familiar surroundings, and they would be banished someplace else as a form of, of punishment. So there, again, a number of uh, islands in the Aegean Sea that were used for this purpose. So probably John was not alone. There were probably other prisoners with him. And many times, again, I'm not sure in this particular case, but many times in these situations, they were not trying to kill these people. Please understand, humanity back then, I mean, they had no problem with killing people. They literally wanted to be exiled and to experience the, the provisions of that. So there could have been guards that were caretakers that were there caring for what was going on, etc. And so it's possible for, as we see with Paul and others, where there's friendships that develop, and he could have gotten it off that way as well, but again, not knowing any. At this point, I want to be cognizant of time, and so... Dr. Brickle and his family are going to be available to you here in the front. And so if you've got further questions, be sure and come up and ask them and uh, be prepared for next week. Can we give a hand to Dr. Brickle and thank him for his time with us? All right. God bless you. You are dismissed. You're free to ask further questions. Mob him. He's got all the time in the world tonight.